Belgioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheesemaking. Using only natural ingredients and fresh, local Wisconsin milk, master cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioso, every cheese is a specialty. I always love when you come on, Joanna, and we kick Sam off for the day. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> um, okay, let's get right into it because I really want to talk about this late night segment. I feel like we've been seeing it a lot in the news, like a lot more than usual in the past two weeks, which has really been interesting that everybody seems to be jumping on the late night day part. Pizza Hut, man, you wrote that story. Chipotle, White Castle. I mean, like there is a lot of brands that are really jumping on this late night segment all at the same time. So there must be some kind of wind that they're seeing in their direction that's pushing them all towards this. I mean, what do you guys think is really stirring this? You know, what's interesting to me is that we talked about day parts on this podcast last week, but last week we were talking about breakfast and we were talking about how dinner is moving earlier. Um, so the upshot of that conversation was that people are eating dinner closer to six instead of eight. And so part of me is wondering, especially because everyone who has gone into late night this week in particular has said they're targeting younger consumers. Are the teens eating dinner with their families and then going out for a second dinner? I'm not judging because I absolutely functioned that way as a teenager. Um, like dinner at home with my family and then meet up with my friends at Taco Bell or IHOP at like nine or 10 at night. Um, is that, is it like cycling back? I think that could be a really big part of it is that like this, this late night day part is very specific right now, but I think it's part of the wider changing day parts picture. I mean, for a few years there, nobody was going out with their friends. Um, and so I think teens are, and young adults are just like settling back into the way teens and young adults have kind of always functioned. And the labor outlook is better now. So restaurants can, extend their hours. They've got people to cover those hours finally. Uh, so I think a lot of things are just falling into place and it's looking really good for late night. Yeah, I think that uh, I, I think I agree. I think that late night has always been an important day part for especially uh, uh, quick service restaurants. Um, but I just think that it's it's really a return to old habits and kind of what what we previously used to do. Um, and something that I noted uh, in, uh, in in writing the LinkedIn newsletter today, uh, which you should obviously subscribe to the NRN LinkedIn newsletter, <laughs> um, a little plug there, um, is that I love that it's this time of year. I don't know if these people are doing it on purpose. I, I was inspired by Chipotle, but it's great to do that. Uh, it's great to bring back late night in October because I feel like you kind of associate Halloween with going out late at night. Um, I guess I was I was inspired by the um, Chipotle late night burrito, which is which is definitely really fun. It's also interesting because the Chipotle is actually really interesting because I associate their their burrito uh, promotion with kids. Uh, and not so much like teens and like young adults. So I guess they're trying to target more demographics. Well, and another thing I think is interesting is that, you know, when you thought about late night before now, you thought about Jack in the Box, you thought about Taco Bell, you thought about these places that have m more of a strong foothold in the late night part, more quote unquote stoner food or drunk food. Um, and so that was, but now places like Pizza Hut, like I would not consider Pizza Hut a late night 
day part, but they're moving into that direction. And I wonder if the consumers are going to change with what they're doing. Like if these promotions are actually going to work and push these other brands into late night, because I feel that some brands really own late night. The Pizza Hut story is really interesting. And Joanna, I'll let you give your two cents on this too, because you obviously usually cover Pizza Hut. Um, but I wrote this story while you were out this week. Pizza Hut is relying heavily on technology for this late night push. Um, their parent company, Yum Brands, acquired a company called Dragon Tail a couple years ago um, that is helping them implement AI in the kitchen. And they're saying that that is really helping them be able to extend the Pizza Hut hours. They're also, after a certain hour, I think it's midnight, they are going like off premises only. So like Pizza Huts will be open until 2 a.m., but only for delivery and carry out. Um, so that's another like way to kind of ease into late night for them to test out if late night is good for them. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting way to approach it. So I, so I actually, I, I do want to disagree that for me, when I was in college and stuff, like late night pizza was a huge thing. Um, and so I am kind of surprised that it's kind of taken so long for Pizza Hut to really dig into uh, and, and kind of extend that late night day part. Um, and I absolutely love that they're using technology to do it. Um, I think that that, I think it totally makes sense to lean into automation and, and AI for late night because it's it's it is more difficult to get uh to get labor to be like hey do you want to work like the eight o'clock to two a.m. shift like not a lot of people want to do that and so I think that it really really helps to um to have that uh, to to have Dragon Tail helping out with that. Well, and I mean, you know, when you talk about the like getting employees, I think about White Castle because White Castle, first of all, has a has a strong foothold in the late night day part. They're introducing a new merch collaboration, which is really fun. But, you know, they talk about their employees a lot at White Castle and how important they are. And they have never really had a hiring problem, I don't think, for their late night day part. Because we talked to them last year for Brand Icon and they were talking about how their employees love working there. Like it's it's really a thing that they enjoy doing is working at White Castle and even the overnight shifts. And so I think that you can do it right with people. You don't need the technology, but the technology is very helpful in helping. Like, I mean, I think a lot of it, though, is that people stumble in somewhere and you're not going to stumble in if you're only uh, getting delivery or takeout. I think that's a different customer set. Um, they both exist. They both exist in day in the nighttime day part, but it feels weird saying nighttime day part, but that's what you got to do. <laughs> um, so I think that it's it's just like a it's two different kinds of people we're talking about. And I don't know if they will ever overlap. I think something also worth noting here is that this is not the first time we have noted this trend recently. Uh, our colleague uh, Alicia Kelso wrote about late night, the late night comeback in August. So this has been happening kind of for a while, definitely as as a recovery measure from from COVID. But um, uh, and I think that um, I think that's what's great about late night is that it's such an easy market. It's so easy marketable. That's English. It's easily marketable because it's just I feel like a lot of restaurants kind of lean into that more fun um, marketing and, and, um, and advertising. And so, um, for example, uh, Alicia wrote about in, uh, August, Jack in the Box, um, their munchie box, uh, sorry, munchie meal, 
uh, with Snoop Dogg. So that's really fun. And I feel like they're really kind of, it's just like a wink and a nod to kind of thinking, all right, well, people are definitely going to be going out and doing whatever with whatever substances and you're going to be hungry. Um, and I, I just think it's it's such a fun opportunity. And it's it's really honestly an easy, besides the labor part, I think it's an easy win for restaurants. I will say some of my late night food is Wingstop. I used to live right near a Wingstop. And I will tell you, that's a good late night snack. A nice thing of hot wings with some dipping sauces. Like, I think Wingstop needs to get a little bit more into the late night game because they're not open that late. But I think that they would do really well in this space. Oh, yeah. Wings are definitely good late night food. For me, this is not a chain. So sorry for our, our uh, multi-concept uh, operators out there. But um I love being in New York. I love getting a dollar slice pizza after going out late. <laughs> that's, that's definitely where it's at for me. <laughs> hot sauce. That's my rule. It has to have hot sauce on it. All right. So, I mean, we're kind of walking, dancing, tiptoeing into the next segment. <laughs> I was going to say, is this a segue? A hot sauce segue? <laughs> it's a hot sauce segue. I my love favorite it. kind of segue. Um, <laughs> so Popeye's who started the chicken sandwich wars, um, now has a spicy one with Truff, which we've seen Taco Bell collab with Truff. So this is, Truff is nothing new to the industry. They've been doing innovative things, but um, now Popeyes is introducing a spicy version of its chicken sandwich, which is an interesting thing. They've had ghost pepper wings on the menu for a little bit now, so they are enjoying spice. But I'm curious to see what you guys think about how their customers are going to react, because I think people go to Popeyes for a specific reason versus going there to try something new. Yeah, you know, the chicken sandwich wars started in 2019, I want to say, maybe 2018. Um, like you said, with Popeyes, obviously not the first chain to have a chicken sandwich, but they really started the the current trend. And over the last year or so, you know, for, for a few years there, everybody was just adding chicken sandwiches. And now for the last year or so, we've seen people change their chicken sandwiches. Um, or add variations on it. You know, Chick-fil-A has added some variations. They've tested out a cauliflower chicken sandwich. Um, lots of chains have been evolving their chicken sandwiches. We've talked about how trendy chicken is right now and popular for a reason. Uh, so it's interesting to me to now see the like OG chicken war chain jump on that trend of evolving its chicken sandwich. It makes me think like, there must be a market for it. I don't know if they're seeing a fall off in chicken sandwich sales uh, or if they were just like, well, it's been, you know, four or five years. Like, let's see what's out, what else we can do with this. As you said, I mean, brand collaborations as a whole are huge right now. Uh, Truff in particular, as you said, worked with Taco Bell. Spice is a trend. So I think it's just kind of the merging of a lot of different trends for Popeyes. Um, I'm excited by it. I think that, you know, it's the kind of thing that could get people back to Popeyes. If people were really bullish on Popeyes back when they first launched their chicken sandwich, but they've since changed their loyalties, uh, they might say, ooh, well, now they've got this this new kind of chicken sandwich. Oh, that's right. I did love Popeyes chicken sandwich. I'm going to try it with the hot sauce or even just, oh, right, Popeyes has a chicken sandwich. I should go back to Popeyes full stop, even if it's for something else. Um, so I think it's clever. I'm curious to see how it does. I mean, I can't think off the top of my head, like how Popeye's has been performing lately, which probably means that it's been humming along just fine. Uh, 
So I'm curious to see what kind of impact this has on on Popeyes. Yeah. Um, so I was I was thinking that something that's interesting about the the a couple of things that are interesting about the new Popeye sandwich is one. First of all, I'm glad that we're seeing a move away from the two typical spicy collaborations, which we have seen eight million people either collaborating with Frank's or Mike's Hot Honey. I have both of those products in my house right now, so I have no problem with them. But I just feel like everyone is kind of doing Hot Honey. Uh, which is kind of a different a different spin on that because it's it's obviously sweeter um, the the hot honey and so this collaboration with truff and specifically truff mayo is interesting because I feel like if it was just the truff hot sauce or just a hot sauce in general you might think okay they're getting into like the Nashville hot chicken territory uh, hot chicken sandwich territory in which case that's been done a million times but I think it's interesting that it is. Um, the truff mayo, uh, which which makes it kind of more of a different flavor, um, and that truffle flavor puts a puts a kind of unique spin on it. Um, I was actually I think that obviously truffle has been such a I don't even want to call it a trending flavor because it's been such a popular flavor in brands that I would say are either independents or not quick service, and so it's kind of interesting to see truffles in a sauce on a on a chicken sandwich at Popeyes. I hate to say it, but this collaboration and the truffle mayo specifically reminds me of Shake Shack. And I think that they are yeah. Shake Shack's done a lot of truffle collaborations, but they do have their own proprietary spicy sauce that they put on the Shack burgers and it just it's all giving me the same kind of vibe. Uh so but it works for them. They've introduced white and black truffles and it's worked for them perfectly. So why not hop on that trend? Yeah, it is interesting. I, it, would be, it would be interesting to do a uh, a head-to-head between uh, Shake Shack's uh, truffle sandwiches versus um, versus the Popeye's chicken sandwich. Joanna, don't give your video editor any ideas. Because <laughs> she well, I wouldn't be doing it. It would be our colleague, Brett Thorne. <laughs> I will Brett next week to do that for our video, and then we will tag it back to this page so you can all see it. But we will do that. That's perfect. The truffle thing also targets, you know, a different consumer than a usual Popeye's consumer. You know, when Shake Shack first started doing the truffle thing, they did a whole marketing campaign around Shake Shack as fine dining. Like they set up a fine dining Shake Shack for the night and put out white tablecloths and candles Um, because the truffle flavor is, I mean, it's a slightly like actual truffles are like a higher price point. It attracts a more upscale consumer. Uh, and so I'm not saying that people who usually are out at fine dining restaurants are suddenly going to go to Popeye's instead, but I think it could draw in a slightly higher consumer or, you know, a kid who wants Popeye's, their parent might say, oh, well, I'll get the, you know, truffle, the truff sandwich um, instead of going somewhere else for my own food. So that's a, that's a good point, too, is it could be targeting a slightly different consumer than Popeye's usual. Well, and what's also interesting is that, so Sam this week on his episode of Takeaway talked with the CEO of Fuku, the David Chang spinoff of Momofuku, and their chicken sandwich started as a special menu item, a secret menu item. So you didn't know about, you had to go in and know about the sandwich to ask for it at Momofuku because it was chicken thigh and they were making this sandwich with chicken thigh that nobody else is doing. Still, we have yet to see a lot of mainstream companies use chicken thigh, which is interesting. As Brett Thorne would say, they're missing out, Um, but they also only do a spicy sandwich. They were, she was saying on the podcast that they only do a spicy sandwich at Fuku. If you're looking for something that's not spicy, don't come in here. 
And I thought that was a really interesting thing to say that like they want they identify so strongly with this spice. And now that Popeyes is picking up on that, I think I think it's interesting to see that this brand that's been operating for so long on this one tenant is now getting more competition from quick service. Yeah. I think, yeah, that is, that is interesting. I don't think I knew that Fuku um, only did spicy sandwiches. Huh. Um, you got to listen to this week's episode of extra of takeaway, Joanna. It's very interesting. <laughs> um, so something that is also, so I actually have never, I don't know if you guys have had the truff spicy mayo. I have a bottle of the truff hot sauce in my fridge and they're not sponsoring. They don't, they won't care because I, but it's hot, right, Joanna? I don't love it. Mm. And let me explain why. It's because I really wanted to because I know it's so popular and I think and I think that it's I think it's an it's a, probably a controversial opinion, but I don't love it because it's first of all it's very thick. Again, I haven't had the mayo so I don't know. It's very very thick and it's so incredibly like pungent and overwhelming with the truffle flavor. And so I feel like that kind of overwhelms any of the spicy part of it. Um, and so I think that you have to be careful in not putting a ton on it. Again, I don't know if this, I haven't had the mayo, so I don't know. Um, but I guess that that's something that in general, when you're using truffle flavor, especially if you're using artificial truffle flavor, you have to be careful to not use too much or to, to not overpower because it can very easily become too much. I remember Brett saying when he ate the Shake Shack truffle burger that it was it was interesting. He he wasn't he wasn't set either way, but he said it's interesting. I he wasn't sure if he liked it or disliked it, but he was definitely saying that there is a truffle flavor coming through. He tried the white truffle, so that's a little different than black truffle. But he was saying that you you get a little bit of it, but it's not so much. And they had it on fries too, so Shake Shack really went all in. And I feel like Popeyes is is looking at the trends. They're seeing where things are. They've come with a big parent company they have all the resources in the world i mean of course they're seeing this as a trend and they must know that it works because they're not testing it a few markets they went all in so they must know that this is exactly what their customer is looking for because they have all this market research on it so i think we're going to see more companies come up with hot sandwiches especially the hot chicken sandwiches that don't go into nashville hot territory so i think joanna you're right that it's a fine line but i think we're going to see a lot more of these and as for the unofficial tagline of this podcast, I'm saying it's the unofficial tagline of this podcast. And now I'm hungry. <laughs> Honestly, you're so right. I ate some fruit before I came on here, but I'm starved. We but should make some shirts that say extra serving podcast on the front on the back, dot, dot, dot. And now I'm getting hungry. <laughs> all right. Well, what a perfect place to end, guys. Uh, now that we're all hungry, we've talked our faces off about food. Um I'm going to throw it over to Brett Thorne, who interviewed Justin Rosenberg, the founder and CEO of HoneyGrow. Belgioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheesemaking. Using only natural ingredients and fresh, local Wisconsin milk, master cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioso, every cheese is a specialty. How's everything going? What, how many locations of Honeygrow are there now? Yeah, so we're, we're at 36 locations. Um, we'll reopen five this year with about four more to go. Um, everything's, thank God, really good. You know, it's we're, we're heads down, just, you know, opening restaurants, running the existing restaurants, and um, thank God everyone's doing okay. That's great. And why don't you tell our audience 
uh, some members of whom might not be familiar with Honey Grow, what it is. Of course. So we are a fast casual concept, um, started in Philadelphia. Uh, we serve freshly made to order uh, stir fries, salads, and our signature honey bar, um, which is basically fruit, drizzle some honey on top with some garnish, really simple uh, dessert. Um, that's it. Very simple menu, um, really a, a wholesome foods way of eating. It's, it was created from really because of my own health concerns back, call it 13, 14 years ago. And I was went fully plant-based and was making my salads for lunch and stuff I had left over. I was putting in some noodles at night and made a stir fry and, you know, pretty crazy to be here 11 years later and, you know, build a company around it. It's pretty nice. And, and people come in and they buy your stuff. So that's cool. It's going well. It's a plus. Yeah. <laughs> Glad they are. <laughs> uh, so what are some of the more popular accommodations? It's all customizable, of course, because it's, you know, the fast casual kind of yeah. thing. But how, how yeah. Yeah. So, um, sorry about Oh, I was just going to say, how how do customers engage with it and what are some of the popular combinations? Yeah, so the number one thing we sell is pretty on stir fry. Um, we have fresh and made egg white noodles. We have fresh and made whole wheat noodles, which you tried. And we're always trying some new stuff. And we were testing some new noodles, actually, when, when you were down in Philadelphia, which was really fun. Yeah, that was um, good. But people just, yeah, I mean, people just love to throw in various vegetables. We have various sauces, spicy garlic, sesame garlic, or garlic butter. It's a lot of garlic, but... Do like garlic? I like garlic. It works. Uh, coconut curry. Um, we had a Chesapeake crab stir fry during the summer. This fall, we actually have a, a miso garlic. It's delicious. Um, it's doing very well. But it's a freshly made egg white noodle, uh, grilled chicken, miso corn, chives, caramelized onions. Um, it's really good with a miso garlic sauce. So now it's uh, and and I think my goal from the beginning was to just be different from all the other concepts that are out there. There's so many fast casual players these days. Um, you know, I'm part of that early boom in the early 2010s, and there's so many bowl concepts and salad concepts. Um, you know, we sell 85% stir fried and salad, so um, I'm proud to be distinct from that. Uh, we, we certainly don't consider ourselves a bowl concept. We want food to be made to order fresh, um, depending on your team. I mean, our, our team can work. I mean, you're learning basically how to split say You can start a honey grow or go to a fine dining or come from fine dining and come to honey grow it's it's really an interchangeable skill set which i'm proud of why do you think that is are there are there extra chefy elements to to what you guys do yeah for sure i mean i think one of the big differences of our model is um unlike we're not in a assembly line format so there's a lot of those concepts that are out there they're great um when i created the concept that just wasn't possible i really wasn't sure how to do that <laughs> so everything is really freshly made to order and you really need to you need to train someone to cook, um, which isn't always the easiest thing. And I, you know, I used to be the GM and cook on the line, and sometimes I still do. And you know, somebody's in a bad mood, you could taste that. So you really need to make sure you can find a team of people that know how to cook, care about the food. Um, there's nothing worse going to some restaurants where you just see people beating up the food. Like you know, food's beautiful. You want to make sure it's colorful and, and looks great. And, um, it's hard. So we, I think it's a tougher concept from that standpoint, but, um, we can execute and sure we're not batting a person. Nobody is, but it's something I'm very proud of as a model. So, uh, what is your own background, Justin? Well, my background, I'm, I'm from New York where I'm sitting, I don't know if I'm up or down the street from you, but we'll figure it out. Where, where, where's the office? We are in Murray Hill. We're on third Avenue between 39th and 40th. Okay, so I'm north of you. I'm, I'm in the 59th and 60th right now. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm from here and went to Penn State undergrad. 
met a girl. Um, now my wife, mom of our three kids, 20 plus years ago, or not 20 years ago, I should say, I should know these things. I uh, moved to Philadelphia, where she was from, got a job in uh, ultimately finance. I uh, got my MBA at night and uh, just learned finance and doing really asset management for a real estate investment trust in Philadelphia. Um, really interesting stuff. Got my MBA in finance and then realized I don't want to be sitting in a cubicle for the rest of my life. <laughs> my passion is really food. Uh, growing up here, I was lucky enough to go to some really great restaurants and not necessarily the fancy ones, which I did here and there. But growing up within Long Island, Queens area, Brooklyn, you know, places like, you know, more like soulish kind of foods and growing up having the debates of the best pizza and the best bagels before they became, you know, kind of pop culture, which is, I think, great. Um, but I really, my passion has been food. And around the time I was in my mid-20s, I had some health concerns. I mean, I had high blood sugar and high cholesterol and weighed a lot more and I, was, I wanted to get my life in order. So uh, I think the what scared me is when my doctor told me, he's like, we just had our first daughter. And he's like, do you want to see your daughter walk down the aisle? Because you're not, you can keep this up. Wow. Scared me. I uh, read a book by T. Colin Campbell, the China study back in 2008, nine, and reversed my, my philosophy on food tremendously. So went vegan for a bit, definitely not vegan anymore, but I eat mostly plants. Um, but I was like full on for two years and reversed a lot of the challenges. Stuff lower for me, really went back to normal. Um, but I was making salads for lunch and the stuff that I prepped and had left over, I put into a wok at night at my house, tossed with some soba noodles or udon noodles. And I was like, you know, no one's really doing this. There's so many of these salad concepts on both coasts. Cool, but it's already been done a million times. What's well, something that's really distinct, unique, you could do a lunchtime, dinner time, uh, something that could be urban suburban, something that could be around the country. So I wrote the, the business plan for Honey Grow and it was a play on words of honest eating grown local. Um, the original version of Honey Grow, we're going to buy all local, which is totally impossible. So, you know, that that's fine. But uh, honest eating was the idea of everything's being made to order. You're seeing it made. Um, you know, my family, we buy all local. I'm lucky enough to live by a bunch of farmers markets, farmers markets in the Philadelphia suburbs. Um, and for many reasons, I like the, the flavor, the colors are nice, the amount of nutrition you're getting from from when it's local is beautiful. So, you know, we buy as local as possible. We're not getting bananas and avocados local, obviously. So um, that was the idea. And again, to just be doing something where the food also would be really good. I think a lot of these little concepts that are out there, it's like put a bunch of crap in a bowl and here you go. And some are good, some are not. How do we do something where the noodles will have some chew? It's a higher quality noodle. We're using the same noodles as David Chang at Momofuku. Um, you know, it's not something I'm willing to, to compromise. We have debates internally sometimes and, uh, I'm not going to sacrifice the quality of our food. I mean, that's key. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're you're in a number of markets at this point, right? Yeah, so we're we're based in Philly, but we're also in Boston. We're here in New York and Brooklyn, Hoboken, uh, throughout North and South Jersey, Delaware, Baltimore Metro, Maryland's uh, Bel Air area, um, DC Metro, Pittsburgh. If I didn't say that already. And I think that's it. I should know these things off the top of my head. But yeah, seven markets total. Uh, and do you have a lot of uh, regional variation with, with a focus on localness? Is that something you're actually able to to express in a in a more local way than maybe other chains might? Yeah, I mean, we're we're definitely, we have somebody just full-time devoted to supply chain. So we're, we're looking at various regions where we can do things a little bit different. We, we show, showcase it on our walls. Um, as we've gotten bigger, it's gotten harder, no lie, but how do we kind of maintain 
our ethos while at the same time making sure that we can run the business successfully. For a while, we were doing regional stir fries and regional salads, which is really cool. The challenge became maintaining costs and food costs and consistency with that. So we've actually transitioned away from that. But some of the regional favorites that we've had, notably the Chesapeake Crab Stir Fry, which were the, was for the DMV, we brought that back last summer and a few summers prior to that. And it's actually our best-selling seasonal stir fry. It's, it's delicious. It's just like this old bay broth crab, like freshly made egg white noodles. It's my personal favorite stir fry as them all. But uh, yeah, so so we're always looking to do something from our past, but at the same time, what could we be doing going forward on an innovative basis, but for all restaurants. So is is that uh, crab stir fry, is that only available in the Chesapeake Bay area or is it all over? Now, so it used to be just the Delaware, Maryland, Virginia area. Um, and then I think, so post, so during COVID, we stopped doing the regional stuff, which like, all right, this is difficult. Let's just do one right. thing. And so during 20, I think it was, yeah, it was 2020, we brought it back. And thank God we did. <laughs> it really helped us with sales back in that period of time. And uh, the crab price last year was astronomically high. Um, and we brought it back again this year. We were able to afford it and have it at a good price point for our customers. So you, you, uh, it sounds like a lot of your produce is coming from the Northeast where you're based. Is that? I would think that is often a logistical challenge since a lot of the produce we eat in this country comes from California. So how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, we're, we're definitely getting stuff from California. So not, not fully local at this point. So I think it's, you know, it's like anything else. I mean, we're lucky enough to have vendors that are willing to work with us on various aspects of the supply chain, you know, from a national level, we're all feeling the pain of, of weather changes, supply and demand. I mean, for us not to dive too deep into it, but beef prices are up. Um, various other things are up right now. So we're feeling the same pain and, you know, let, local or not, I think we're at a point now where when you see these trends nationally, we're going to get hit by that as well. Yes, that's true. Um, so you said something interesting that if a cook is angry, I'm going to taste it when I, in when I eat it. And I think that's true. I've certainly <laughs> eaten food uh, by someone who's pissed off and, uh, don't enjoy it as much. And, and I, I'm not a professional cook, so I've realized I can't cook for people I don't like. So, or like, don't actively <laughs> like, like if I don't really like someone, the food's not going to taste as good. So uh, how do you manage the mood of your employees so that they are making food that tastes happy? That, that's a really great question. And I actually have an answer for it. Great. So um, what, one of the things, so, so backtrack, you know, I don't know, nine, eight years ago, I'm still running our restaurants here and there cooking on the line. And I, I would often wonder like, why do people want to work here? Like, like it's not an easy job. You're, you're on your feet, you're cooking. It probably is easier to work at Target. I don't know. Like, you know, you may get paid more at that point in time. Um, and I really was trying to wrap my head around how do we do it? And and kudos to our team today. I think they really helped solve that. Um, we launched something about three years ago called our Elite GM program. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer that there's no bad teams, only bad leaders. Um, if you have a really great leader, they can build you know, teams of basically you know, solid human beings to run it. And if there are bad human beings on there, they can remove those folks and really make sure the team is going to be strong. So a GM is the most important person in our company. I sometimes hear other people say this. 
it, like it, it's legitimately true. Like you need to make sure that the leader in the four walls is happy, kicking butt, motivated, and really has a great team and building that team and developing that team. So we launched this program about three years ago, Elite GM program. Um, certain metrics here and there they need to hit, but ultimately it's a feeling when you walk in. It's actually very similar to the restaurant tour program from Chipotle from back in the day. Um, and the folks that have become elite GMs at Honey Grove, the food tastes better, the, the culture is better, um, the profit's better, the comp is, is sales comp is up. It really is special. And they're, and they're getting paid more to, for this. They're getting a double bonus, they're getting a raise. Um, first, first two guys that got it got a trip. So if they're happy, the rest of the team's going to be happy. And we want to make sure GMs are top class, highly professional. And, and quite frankly, besides really just the pipeline of real estate these days, which I'm sure you're you know more than aware of and heard other folks talk about, um, finding really great leaders is the biggest challenge we will face forever. I think that's one of the key things. I will say also, there's always these pushes to automation now, which, which certainly is something that we've also looked at as well, but nothing will replace great hospitality. You, you know, I, I'm just, at the end of the day, like you want to walk into a restaurant and feel good. I'm going to quote a friend of mine who I was on a panel with recently, Ivan Orkin from Ivan Raman. Mm -hmm. um, he, he had a great line, which I've been telling our team nonstop, which is, you know, when it comes to restaurants, like, you know, you're, you're not going to go back to a restaurant. Rarely would you go back to a restaurant if the food is really, really great, but the service is really bad. Like you're just not going to go back. But if the food is like good and the service is incredible, you're going to go back. And we want our food to be great. And we want the service to be legendary. And, and it's hard. Like all of us in this business, it's really challenging. It's all about the people, but um, it's something that we're really focused on. And, you know, look, we don't automate anything at the moment and our numbers work. So that's that's the goal. Great. So what, what do you do to keep people motivated? Because it's not something you can just sort of set and forget. You kind of have to be engaged with people all the time. For sure. How, how do you do that? The, the, that's the that's the million dollar question right um a lot i mean at the end of the day at the end of the day there, there's everything sure we we pay very well in my opinion we're paying you know above market certainly above minimum wage in various states um we have bonus programs we have really the egm program is, is kind of like a pipeline to develop future leaders so we're always trying to tell our folks like look we need future gms we need future agms we need future service managers like we want you to move up Here's how you do it. And so there's always a clear pathway to help these folks move up who can then be the leaders of our new restaurants. Um, so we're lucky enough to be growing that we have that, that capability. Also, I mean, just the support center, our office at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of people in our office. I'm very proud of that in the sense of, we just have quality people in our office. We don't have some crazy GNA number. Um, and the team cares. And I, I really stress to the team, you're either worrying about the customer or you're worrying about the people that worry about the customer. That's it. And, you know, even if you are in an HR role or an accounting role, you know, in a sense, like you are a service person for the field, you are a service person for the GM. So if they're calling frustrated about something, like be nice, like, don't be like, you know, we'll, we'll go to page 48, and da, 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 like work, work with them. And I think, you know, one of the things I've seen in many companies is the bifurcation between the home office and the field. And I saw that in my previous job and, and even we had dealt with that about five six years ago and it's something that i really you know with my team we've worked hard to eliminate and we're not perfect at it but you know we're one team at the end of the day we're looking to continuously just excite folks with our food and experiences speaking about excitement of food and experiences what I, so 
as as you alluded to, I went down to Philadelphia and hung out with you guys. What was it? Two months ago? A month ago? Recently? Yeah. yeah whatever. Too, yeah. And we we checked out different flavors and stuff. It was a lot of fun. What are some of uh, the new flavors that you've kind of uh, jumped onto? And and my my this difficultly worded question is: What's new at Honeygrow? What are some new menu items that you're excited about? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll backtrack. But like when you were there, I'm sure remember we were testing different noodles. Right. Um. Those those didn't work out. We we were testing that the, the brisket. Um. I was actually with Huda. Uh, Yehuda Seichel recently, he's a very good friend of mine. He actually, he beat Bobby Flay. He's a local chef in Philadelphia where he used to work for Mike Salmanov and now he has food and sandwiches. Um, we haven't really pushed forward on the brisket side. Notably on our side, the cost is going to be tough. So we haven't figured that out. Um, we are testing a chicken farm stir fry right now, which is really delicious. It's a freshly made egg wet noodle, grilled chicken, uh, breadcrumbs, parm, parsley. Um, it's It's like one of my favorite surprises ever, a marin like a marinara kind of sauce. It's really, really delicious. Um, it's kind of a, an evolution of what we had last year. We had a dish called the Oadrian, which was kind of this tomato broth. Um, we had sausage, freshly made egg white noodle, pepper, onion. It was really like an Italian hero-ish kind of, of, of dish, um, which was a fan favorite. So we're evolving it a little bit. Um, we're testing a mango habanero stir fry, which is, I think, really good. So I'm excited for that. Um, I know we were talking about soups. We've, we've postponed that for the time being. The feedback we got on our soups really was the cost was too high. Um, and we couldn't really make the food cost work on that side. So we've tabled it for now. Um, I don't know. There's, there's always something going on. We we're testing we we're testing gelato for a little bit. That was kind of cool, but didn't work for us. I think one of the things I'm proud of with our culture is that we're always going to test something. And, uh, you know, there's no problem being wrong. If someone's in the room saying that's a stupid idea, which I've done many times, uh, my team enjoys proving me wrong, which is great. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I don't care. We want this business to be successful. Um, and that's that's always the push. Yeah, Huda kind of serendipitously came in while I was visiting you guys and brought his brisket, and it was delicious. But, yeah, I imagine the, best, yeah. the cost would be. He makes, yeah, it was tough. He makes these milk buns, which I literally buy like bagels. Like, he doesn't sell them. But I'll go in there and buy like a dozen milk ones and my family just inhales them. They're they're like the most delicious. I don't even know what the hell they are. They're just these little hollow rolls that are just so good. But not not on Honey Grow's menu yet. I mean, that would be tough. He he's baking those things fresh out of his own spot. Um I mean it, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Not at Honey Grow yet. Well, and if you're a stir-fry noodle and salad place, adding sandwiches is operationally difficult and not on brand so i mean is that something <laughs> I think my team would you, revolt <laughs> yeah i mean and you said you were testing gel or playing with gelato and stuff is it hard to kind of like stay on brand and in focus when i'm sure you want to feed everybody all sorts of delicious things but you know you've got limited resources you know yeah. i i I created this concept kind of like in the mindset of like Apple computers back in the day. It's like, this is what we do. This is what we're going to be really good at. And that's it. And that actually is an entrepreneur. Like all these ideas will bubble up and our team is always very creative. And the field has ideas. Um, you know, I actually, it's funny. I once suggested sandwiches back in 2019 where we're thinking about how to do catering and everyone just started laughing at me. Like we can't do that. <laughs> and quite frankly, they were, they were totally right. We have a catering program. It's about 5% of our sales, four or 5% of our sales. 
and there's no sandwiches and we're very happy with the outcome. So it, it's working very well. Um, it's a balance. I mean, the gelato thing was something that didn't work. Um, it, it was operationally easy. I mean, the, the process for us is really, you know, Hey, does this taste good? You know, let's try it. Let's start there. Is this something that's going to sell? And then how hard is it operationally? What is the food cost going to be? Because we want to make, make sure we can maintain our margins, you know, as a company, you know, we're running low twenties on EBITDA store level. So we got to maintain that and continue to grow that. Um, and we, yeah, we've been profitable for a few years as an organization and, and kind of the running joke for me is there's some recently IPO amazing companies that are out there, but we make more money than on an income basis. Granted, they have hundreds of more restaurants than us, but you know, my goal is to run this old school and have it profitable and make sure our investors can do very well. And it sounds like you're doing that. So that's great. And, yes, and you've, you've experimented with other stuff in the past. You had a, like a smaller footprint thing called mini grow, right? Yeah, that was like, you know, I, I would just walk past the old one. It's <laughs> on 45th Madison. Um, yeah, Minigro was more, if you think about food, like I'll backtrack and say the food in Minigro was really good. I think Minigro really was a business solution back in 2015, 2016, where the, our cost to build our restaurants was too much. And it started one way and then it just kind of scope creeped up. And the assumption I had was, hey, like can we continue to build these restaurants urban which was more of a model at the time, um, better, cheaper, faster with an assembly line format. And then we'll do honey groves in the suburbs with one app, one multi program. So um, instead of doing one and testing it, I did six like a schmuck and uh, definitely got beat up. Sales were great until 2.30 in the city, overpaid for rent, learned some really, 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 really hard, tough lessons in my journey of being a CEO. Um, I always say that was kind of my moment of going from founder to CEO and you know, it's just two different skill sets. And, it was it was a hard time. It was very difficult to see another passion project not um, work like Honeygrow work because Honeygrow, sure, we had a little bit of bump on on some of the construction stuff, but then we figured it out. Really figured it out by 2018, and we've opened uh, 13 restaurants since 2020. Those restaurants are doing you know mid 20s on EBITDA, less than a two year payback. You know, that take pushing pause for a company was the greatest thing we could have done. You know, we pushed pause at this point over five years ago, so. Um, you know, it was great. And Minigrow is one of those things where I just said, Hey, look, it's not working. Let's close it. We closed the last one during the pandemic that, that one was actually making money. Um, and that's that, you know, it was, it was a good lesson learned. It was expensive and painful, but hopefully we were able to come out of it stronger. So that was it. One of my favorite sayings is that good choices come from experience. Experience comes from bad choices. So, you know, you, you, you have to mess up sometimes so that you can succeed. I'll I'll go with that <laughs> for sure. Doesn't mean yeah, it, it it was it was it was a hard time, but we got through it, and you know we just got to push through. So the last, I'm going to stop dwelling on mini grow because I'm sure it hurts your feelings a little bit. But what you the last no, one, was, <laughs> the last one was making money. You can talk about as much as you want. Okay, but but not necessary. Because we look forward. But the, the last mini grow you said was making money, but you closed it anyway. How come? It, it, it was during the pandemic. It was making money. But I looked at it from the perspective of two, two things. One, um, it was a distraction because it's a different kind of operation. And we had two concepts. You're just worrying about two sets of different things and different supply chains and different problems. And it just it was a distraction. At that point, we really had Honey Girl locked in. We were like, all right, look, you know, the first four team we had got it the ones that didn't take off and we opened they're now they're really taking off nicely 
um, let's just focus on this and make it great versus really just having something in the portfolio that's going to be a bit of a drag. Um, and for me, like at that point, like no ego, fine. It's just, that's the right decision for the company. Let's do it. Um, and then that was kind of it. And I'll, I'll say also like Honey Grow really was a passion project for me. Mini Grow was looking back on it. A lot of chefs in the kitchen on that one and a lot of lessons learned and not, I, I think the heart wasn't the same for it. And in retrospect, it's like, look, I, I tell young entrepreneurs all the time. It's like, look, you got to have a passion for this and it's got to be coming from the heart and it's got to be coming from your soul. Like you really, you got to, there's got to be a business problem you got to be solving here, right? And monetize it, but you got to really, really want it and be able to bet it out and think about it and, you know, et cetera. So I think mini growth and they prove is great, but more of a business solution, whereas honey grow is like, you know, just that was, that's my passion and soul project and food my family and I eat probably way too much. <laughs> so my wife's actually the number one loyalty, uh, loyalty member. So. Well, yeah, <laughs> there are much easier ways to make money than running restaurants. So you better love it or, you know, you're wasting your time. And you're gonna I agree. Yeah, you know, everyone listening to this podcast who runs restaurants knows it's, it's a tough business, but you gotta be wired a certain way. Like I, I love this business. I, I just, there's something really enjoyable for me to go to new restaurants, taste the food, see the service. How are they doing this? What can we gain from these guys? Like, what are they doing? Right. And then for us, like, I love just like the experience, like people go to Honey Grow, eating the food, enjoying about, enjoying it, talking about it. Team is happy. You know, when it, when it vibes, it's, it's the best. So I don't know. It's a great business. And, I love this industry. And one of the very unique qualities about Honey Grow is the Honey Bar. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So the Honey Bar actually came about watching my daughter eat apples and honey during Rosh Hashanah in like 2010. And I already had apples on the menu for the salad, for the cob. Like, you know what? Like, if we have some fruit and additional stuff and just drizzle local honey, which we're using for one of our dressings and sauces, um, it's just using existing ingredients to really hit um, kind of like an upsell and maybe a midday day part snack. Um, the honey bar is about 5% of our sales. Whoa. So it really, yeah, like it does great. And it's just really clean and delicious. And it's a, it's a great dessert that's just leveraging existing inventory. And it's fruit with honey on top, right? It's fruit, honey, chocolate chips, garnish, coconut flakes, whatever you want. It's, uh, yeah, it's cool. And is it usually bought on top of the noodles or as an afternoon or late morning kind of snack thing or both? It's, yeah, like it's it's kind of both. Like at dinner time, we'll see it more often um, with the stir fries. And then honestly, like we have some restaurants there by high schools. And the kids will come in and they'll just buy honey bars. So it just really depends. But I don't know. I like it. That's good. It's, it's, it's right from the menu. It's one of the ones that work. Awesome. So you've opened how many? 12, 13 restaurants uh, since the pandemic started? Yeah, we've opened 13 since the pandemic um, from Philly metro area, Maryland, uh, Baltimore metro area, and kind of in between. We're opening Pittsburgh. A second Pittsburgh location in a few weeks. We're going to be opening Alexandria, Virginia soon, um, Tom's River, New Jersey, and Broomall, Pennsylvania. And then next year, we're looking to do anywhere from 12 to 14 restaurants. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're pushing. And the challenge we have right now, like everyone else, we're all competing for the same real estate. And there's not enough supply out there. And I'm not willing to overpay and rent or take crap real estate. Like, we're really trying to be smart and grow intelligently and do it the right way. So, you know, we're pushing. Has the nature of what is and is not crap real estate changed since the pandemic? For example, like we hear a lot of stories of 
inner city, like central business places not doing as well, but suburban places doing great. Is that part of your experience also? Yeah, I mean, we went, our urban suburban restaurants are both doing really well now. We basically, um, our restaurants, both urban suburban, both do very well. So uh, for example, our, our two Boston restaurants are top in sales week after week. So we're very happy with the performance there. Um, the, the strategy for us changed in 2018 to go more suburban because we saw our suburban restaurants were cheaper to build and still did a strong top line and were more profitable because the rents made sense. So that's really been our, our approach um, for about five plus years at this point. Um, since COVID, you know, the biggest change I've seen is just the, the distribution of sales going from it's still a third delivery for us, a third um, folks coming in using the kiosks and about a third are our mobile app and website. So, I mean, our, our thesis on real estate remains the same. Find, you know, the right pad site, 2,500 square foot, give or take. I mean, one thing we, we have been doing We've been going a little bigger, a little smaller, depending on what's available. And thank God it's working. Um, but we're, we're simply not willing to overpay and rent or do a deal that doesn't make sense just for, you know, gross sake. That's smart. Um, we're about out of time, but uh, are there any uh, new menu items that we can anticipate in the near future? Or do you not know yet? Or is it a secret? Well, we're testing. We're, no, I don't, I don't care. I'm, I'll tell you. And everyone else is so um well we certainly have the chicken parm stir fry which we're testing right. at our 16th street location with the mango habanero that we're testing as well um 11th street honey grow uh we have this december well right now we have the miso chicken um which is delicious december we're debating probably doing the chicken parm with the mango habanero and most likely be the former and then for next year, I mean, we're, we're always having conversations like, what's our pumpkin spice latte? What do we want to bring back? Chesapeake crab stir fry will probably bring, bring back for the summertime. Uh, spring is kind of an open slot with three different things that we're, we're talking about more or less. Um, salads, we're, we're working with a chef right now who will make an announcement in a bit, which I think a lot of people know on kind of reworking our salad program a bit. I think our salads are, are good. I don't think they're great. And so how do we how do we bridge that and make it great? So um, that is currently in the works. We're hoping to have a springtime-ish launch for that. Uh, and that's kind of it, you know, we can really, and, and again, we're 60% we're dinner as a business, which is pretty cool. But how do we how do we drive more lunch business? Is Maybe it's better salad, maybe it's, you know, I don't know, but if we can do that and drive more folks to come to Honey Grove, then I think we'll be successful. And tell me more about this miso chicken. What is it? Yeah, so it's it's the current seasonal for fall. It's literally, it's uh, freshly made egg white noodles, grilled chicken, miso corn, caramelized onion, Parmesan, and chive with a miso garlic sauce. It's really, I think you like it. It's really good. It's it's doing very well. <laughs> it's, it's a good dish. And you said miso corn, like I'm supposed to know what that is. What What is miso corn? Corn with miso? Corn with white miso, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty much it. 